You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. What do you do when you face a giant problem? And when I talk about a giant problem, I'm not talking about those everyday, ordinary inconveniences where you have a pile of dishes or yard maintenance or the milk is expired. I'm talking about problems that you face that are totally out of your control. If you could do something about it, you would, but you've tried and nothing has worked. These are things like unresolved conflict. And maybe it seems like it's unresolvable, and you've tried every method, you've tried every tactic, but you just can't crack the code. Maybe it's an irreparably damaged relationship, where something happened in a relationship, and you love that person, and you wish that you could be reconciled, but every time you reach out, it's either icy cold silence or fiery hot anger. Maybe it's a sin or a temptation, an addiction in your life that has a hold on you and you've prayed about it, you've confessed it, you've tried to be free of that thing, but it just keeps coming back to haunt you. Maybe it's an unhealthy thought pattern. It's the stress, the anxiety, the depression, the the poor self-worth, or maybe even just chronic negativity. And you try to set your mind on things above, but it's so difficult to just flip a switch and you can't be free of those unhealthy thoughts. Or maybe it's a situation, a problem outside of your control. And that's what makes it so difficult is it seems like you're powerless to do anything about it. It's the health problems or the financial hardship or even dealing with the loss of a loved one. The truth is all of us face giant problems. And maybe today you're facing a giant problem in your life, but if you're not today, you have in the past, and I'm sure that you will in the future. And there are three main ways that we try to deal with these giant problems. The first one is we run away. To run away is to avoid the problem. You might run away by running to a coping mechanism, whether it's a good one or maybe even an unhealthy coping mechanism. We run away by simply trying to ignore the problem long enough, hoping that it'll go away. You might even run away just by trying to escape a situation that you're in. But the reality is, when you ignore a problem, it doesn't go away. In fact, oftentimes that problem grows and it gets even bigger. The second way that we try to handle these giant problems is we actually can give up. Sometimes we give up. Sometimes we become hopeless, and this is to let the problem win. This is, this is to give up that, that fight against sin, sin and temptation. Well, I'll never be free. I guess I'll just live my life this way. It, it's to just say, well, that person doesn't want to be reconciled. I guess we're just never going to talk again. And it's just to kind of throw the towel in. I can't do anything about it. And obviously, this second option is not great. It doesn't actually handle or solve the problems that we face. But then the third option is to fight. When I say fight, I don't mean to get aggressive. I mean to face the problem head on. It's not about throwing punches. It's more about resilience and facing the resistance that you experience in your life. And today what we're going to be looking at in our text from, from Prophets and Kings, this teaching series, is how we can fight with faith, how we can face the problems, no matter how big, how giant those problems are with faithfulness because of our great God. Well, if you know the story of David and Goliath, you know that Israel had a giant 
problem, literally a giant named Goliath. But before we get into that such a famous story, I want to look at the backstory uh, in First Kings cha- or sorry, First Samuel chapter 16. If you remember from last week, we looked at the rise and the fall of King Saul. And there was this prophetic moment where Samuel's robe was torn and he told Saul that the kingdom will be torn from him. And Samuel is told by God in 1 Samuel 16 to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, to anoint the new king of Israel. And so he goes, Samuel goes, with a little bit of trepidation because if King Saul finds out that the prophet Samuel has gone to anoint a new king, his life would be in danger. So he goes under the guise of showing up to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. So, you know, it kind of dissipates any suspicion. And he gets there to the house of Jesse. And the first person he meets, other than Jesse, is he meets the oldest son alive. Look at what happens in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We talked about the last part of that verse yesterday, how, or last week, how man tends to look at the outward appearance. Now, this is interesting. Even the prophet of God, Even Samuel, who should have very good spiritual insight, he looks at this guy and he's like, all right, that's the next guy. You know, I got my horn of oil, I'll anoint him, we're done here. And God actually teaches us and teaches Samuel a lesson that there's so much more than meets the eye. And today that's going to be a key factor in us learning how to step onto the battlefield is to look at things with God's eyes, not to look at things the way that we tend to see them naturally. And so God says no. And so Samuel says to Jesse, bring up the next son. He brings out uh, Abinadab and he brings him out. And he's like, that guy looks pretty good. And God says no. And seven sons, this happens. So, so here's a son. God says no time and time and time again, to the point where Samuel is maybe starting to wonder, did God send me to the wrong house? Did God send me to the wrong house? And uh, he asked Jesse, is that it? Are there any more sons? And Jesse says, well, there's the smallest one. But I mean, he's not much to look at. He's out in the field. He's tending sheep. My son David, uh, I'm sure, you know, I- I'm sure you can just go ahead and don't waste your time right? And Samuel says, no, bring him out here. And what happens is uh, David shows up and God says, this is him. This is the next king of Israel. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 13 says this, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, in verse 14, we see this direct contrast between what is happening with David, who's still a young shepherd boy, and what will happen to King Saul in verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, I know that's kind of a a trippy verse. It kind of freaks us out, right? And now, this harmful spirit, there are a couple options for it. It might be a demon. And by God taking his spirit and his protection away from King Saul, now that opens up the room and it's more God allowing a demon to actually interfere and, and, and torment Saul. It could also be an angel of judgment. So an angel actually that God sends from his throne room to go and torment Saul. Either way, you can see the contrast. 
that the Spirit of God has rushed upon David. He is now the anointed one. And Saul, although he is still the king and will function as the king for quite a while, that God's Spirit has left him and his life is just tragically, till the end, till his tragic death, it'll continue to have this downward spiral. Now, the rest of chapter 16 is going to skip ahead. So chronologically speaking, it actually takes place after David and Goliath. It's going to skip ahead and talk about how God's spirit and resting on David really gives him favor. He ends up being called in to soothe King Saul by playing his harp. Uh, He becomes the armor bearer for King Saul. Him and Jonathan become best friends. And and so it's this this kind of rise of David. It's kind of giving a commentary that David is favored and God is positioning him. Although it will still be a long road, God is positioning him to be the next king of Israel. But before all of that would take place, first, David had to slay a giant. Now, the giant problem that Israel faced is there was this battle that was going to take place in the Valley of Elah. So try and picture this in your mind. The Valley of Elah, it's not unlike the Boise foothills. And there's this lush green valley, and then there's these two foothills on opposing sides. And it's near the city of Soko, and that means it's in the western part of Judah. So this is still an Israelite territory, and the Philistines are on one side, they're on one hill, and the Israelites are on the other side. And they're lined up to battle, and so because they're in Israelite territory, it means the Philistines are the invaders, they're the bad guys, they're coming to take the land that was promised by God for his covenant people, and the Israelites are there to defend themselves. Now, they're at the Valley of Elah, and then what happens is totally unconventional. This is different than any kind of battle that the Israelites were used to facing. They were used to all-out warfare. But now, you have these two opposing armies on these two hills. A lone figure walks out onto the field. It's Goliath of Gath, and he is a giant. And when I say he is a giant, try and picture this. He is actually a giant. In, uh, in our measurements, he is nine foot nine inches tall. This is probably going to even go off the screen, right? But I'm still going, still going, still going. And I think I can't eat. That's nine feet to the ceiling right here, okay? So nine foot, nine inches, that's hard to even imagine. I'm not anything of a spectacle uh, when it comes to height. I'm five foot, six inches. I know that's not tall. Don't worry. All of my elementary school classmates made sure I understood that lesson, but nine foot nine inches. The tallest man in, in recent medical history it, it lived back in the 40s, and he was eight foot 11 inches. So Goliath is about a foot taller than the tallest person that we even know of. He's, he's giant, and he's got this bronze armor. Remember, the Philistines had this monopoly on the blacksmith industry. What they had going for them is advanced weaponry, and he has this huge helmet. He has the, the, this ch- chainmail armor that made out of the, these little uh, tiny, almost scale-looking bronze platelets, and it's 126 pounds heavy. He has armor covering his shins. He has a shield bearer who is his only job, not an armor bearer to, to carry all of his armor. I don't know if anyone could even do that, right? He's a shield bearer to just carry his shield and go out before him, and then he has three weapons. He's a sword, a spear, and a javelin. Three choices for how he wants to kill you, depending on how he feels in that moment. And so Goliath is this terrifying picture of the ideal 
warrior. And Goliath goes out onto the battlefield and he issues this challenge. This is what he says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. There's a silence from the army of Israel. And the question is, who will fight this giant? Now, we have some hints here from the text. There's some of the language that we see that not only describes Goliath, but language that he says himself. Who will you choose to come out and fight us? If only Israel had already chosen someone to be their king to go out and fight for them. If only Israel had someone who was also tall, head and shoulders above the rest. If only God had even appointed and anointed someone to go and take down the Philistines. And the answer is, they have. The person that we are expecting to be the one to meet Goliath in battle is King Saul. If you remember all the way back to Samuel anointing King Saul and the purpose to which he would serve as he was chosen out from among the people, he was appointed to be this military leader. And in 1 Samuel 9.16, it even says, God speaking, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. You might even say that facing Goliath was Saul's destiny. In a different timeline, we might be talking about Saul versus Goliath instead of David versus Goliath. But as we all know, Saul, instead of fighting, he runs away. Not literally running away from the battlefield, but he's hiding out in his tent. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, twice a day, Goliath is taunting and jeering and blaspheming against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Saul is silent. And so Goliath is taunting, and the Israelite army is trembling, but David is traveling. David is traveling. He's on his way, actually. His three older brothers were there at the battle, but David was much too young and much too small and much too inexperienced to go and line up alongside the rest of the soldiers. And so he was back home keeping watch over his father's sheep. And he's there, and, and, and he's, he's with his father, and his father has this idea, won't you bring some provisions to your three oldest brothers and check in on them and make sure they're all right. So David, he hands off the sheep to someone else to watch them. He takes the provisions, and he's traveling. He's on his way. For us, sometimes when you're in that moment, you're in the valley, and you feel like, is God even doing anything? Is God, does God even know what I'm going through? And, and, and you're trembling. no that God is on his way. God is at work. God is moving behind the scenes to do something amazing. And so David shows up, and just as he shows up, drops off all of his supplies, all of his provisions, he goes down to see what's going on in the valley. Are they battling? Is there some action, right? And this is what happens in 1 Samuel 17, 23. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. 
Now, this is a routine thing for the soldiers. Twice a day, Goliath, he's going to come out, he's going to taunt, he's going to issue the challenge, and they've almost grown accustomed to just ignoring it. But David, this is the first time. And for him, it doesn't take you know, 80 times, twice a day for 40 days. David is there, and there's this line right there at the end that's so incredibly important. David heard him. I don't know if you remember from last week's teaching about King Saul, but one of Saul's tragic problems was that he had a hearing problem. Not literally a hearing problem, but, but a problem hearing the voice of the Lord and knowing what God wanted him to do. He had a really difficult time because he never sought God. He, didn't, he, he kind of depended on his own strength, his own might, his own outward appearance. But David, the very first moment he hears this issue of this challenge from Goliath, it says he hears him. He hears him. And Saul and the army would hear that same challenge, and they would say, someone has to do something about this. Man, someone should really step up to the plate. Someone should really go battle Goliath. But what what happens with David is when he hears this, a fire lights deep within his soul. This is what, what some psychologists call the crystallization of discontent. Something shatters within him, and it's not somebody should do something about this. It's I have to do something. So he starts asking about this. How long has, has Goliath been doing this? And, and what's the reward? And he finds out that King Saul is offering riches and fame and his daughter's hand in marriage to the one who slays Goliath. And so he starts saying, man, why has nobody done this? And he starts talking, and his curiosity actually leads him to a meeting with King Saul himself where he is going to offer himself to be the one who will fight Goliath. And what happens is he walks into the tent with King Saul and he says, do not fear, I will fight this Philistine. And in that moment, this is probably a shock both to King Saul's ears and to his eyes. To his ears, it's probably music to his ears. And it's a shock. And maybe he looks over and he's at first excited to to know that somebody is willing to fight this battle. But then he looks upon David and he sees his outward appearance and he is not impressed. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 33. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. He says, You're too young, you're too small, you're too inexperienced, you don't even have a hair on your face, right? And, and, and so what happens is David in this moment, he doesn't back down. This is the king of Israel that he's speaking to. And he pleads his case, and he says, God has been preparing me for this. And he talks about how when he's a shepherd, he's had numerous encounters with lions and with bears and with his staff and with his slingshot. He would fend off uh, those wild beasts, and he would protect the sheep. And at times, when the wild beast wasn't just scared away and they came and attacked him, he said, I've even killed those wild animals in order to protect the sheep. And what David says, he says, Goliath is just like one of those animals. Goliath is just another wild beast who is blaspheming against the living God, and I have to do something to fight him. And and so this is how David summarizes his argument. This is kind of the concluding statement in that tent with King Saul in 1 Samuel 17, 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now that's some confidence from David, but notice he's not underestimating Goliath. 
right? He's not underestimating Goliath, and he's not overestimating his own ability. I mean, think about what King Saul must have saw. He's like, how tall are you, right? So, so, so this is how tall you are, right? You're 5'6", right? You know, you're this tall, and Goliath, you know, he, like, like David, David knows all that. He knows how big Goliath is. He's seen him already. He's heard him. He knows how tall he is, how, how small he is, and, and that's not really what he's considering. In this moment, what does he say? The Lord is the one who's delivered me. God is the one who delivered me from the hand of the lion, from the, from the paw of the bear, and God will be the one who delivers me. And so his confidence comes from somewhere way outside of himself. And we don't know if it's, you know, maybe, maybe Saul is really moved by this speech, or maybe Saul has just come to realize that someone's going to die when they go fight Goliath. It might as well be this random kid who's in his tent. But for whatever reason, Saul agrees. He says, the Lord be with you. Little does he know how, just how much and in what way the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord has already rested upon David and rushed upon him, and the Lord is with him even in this moment. And so what Saul does is he tries to suit David up with his own personal set of armor. I mean, it's the nicest armor in all of the land of Israel. So he gets all the pieces on David, and you can imagine David standing there like a little kid who's wearing clothes that are two sizes too big, and David's there. And what Saul is doing is, in some ways, he's trying to give David the best shot at victory. Goliath has lots of armor. You need lots of armor. In another sense, it's possible that Saul is almost trying to, uh, trying to help David to a point where he would say, if you win, I want to share in this victory. I'm the one who provided the armor. I'm the one who gave you my, very per- my personal sword. You know, If I'm not going to go out to battle, at least my armor can go out to battle for me. And in this moment, David is standing there, and it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit quite right. And so once again, he... Re- he-, he- argues with the king, and he says, no, I haven't, te-. he comes up with an excuse, I haven't tested this armor, and he takes it off, and he's, he's dressed in his regular shepherd clothing. He takes his shepherd's staff, and he goes down to the creek, and he gets five smooth stones for his slingshot. And then I want you to picture this. David goes out onto the battlefield. Goliath is there, issuing his challenge as usual with his booming, bellowing, fearsome, trembling voice to everyone to hear. And David enters onto the scene. And Goliath starts to see a little bit of movement in the distance. He's like, oh, there's a challenger. Someone has come. And then he sees who it is, and he just starts laughing, right? This menacing, almost ha-ha. He's just laughing. And he start, the trash talk begins. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Right? You think sticks and stones can break my bones? And Goliath starts, starts laughing at this, this young shepherd boy who's maybe at most 15 or 16 years old. And he says, I'm going to kill you. And the birds and the beasts will feast on your flesh. And in classic teenager fashion, what David does is he, he doesn't flinch at all. In fact, he dishes it back. He starts talking trash back to Goliath, and he levels it up, in fact. Look at the full speech from David in 1 Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day... 
the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Woo! Now that is some serious, like, righteous trash talk from David. Oh, you're saying you're going to feed me to the birds and the beasts? I'm going to feed you to the birds and the beasts. Not on my own power. And you, can re- you hear that. It's crystal clear. David is not saying, because I'm a better warrior than you, because I have better armor, because I have better weapons than you. What does he say? No, the very reason I am the one to deliver you into our hands is so that it may be known that God is not going to save us by human power, by the outward appearance. God is going to save us by his own mighty, outstretched arm. And this just infuriates Goliath. He's not laughing anymore. Maybe he's grumbling. Maybe, you know, and he, he, he grabs his sword and he starts slowly marching on David. But David doesn't retreat. He doesn't hide. He doesn't give up. He fights. And he all out sprints as fast as he can toward Goliath. Remember, if anyone got, you know, within 10 feet of Goliath, they were done for. They would be decimated by his sword, his spear, or his javelin. But David didn't have any intention of getting that close before he struck. And so he grabbed his one smooth stone from his pouch and his sling. And he's running. He's sprinting. He's spinning that sling as fast as he can. And like a whip, he lets it fly like lightning. This one smooth stone strikes true straight between the eyes of the giant. One of the few places on his body that was not covered with armor, and he falls straight to the ground. And David runs up. He's not leaving anything to chance. Maybe Goliath is dead, or maybe he's just unconscious. And so David, he only has a shepherd's staff. And so he goes, he grabs Goliath's own Philistine-forged blade and chops off his head. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. And I think for us, this is, this is an amazing story. It's one of the most famous Bible stories because it's so engaging and the, the details are so vivid. And, you know, there's all these kind of lessons we could draw out about the underdog and about facing our giants and all of that sort of stuff. But ultimately, that's the point, that the battle belongs to the Lord. That David was the conduit of God's judgment. David was the one who got to be used by God in this moment. But ultimately, the battle belongs to the Lord. And how we tend to look at our lives and the problems we face is we ask these two questions. We ask the question, how big is my problem and how big is my ability? And so to use the tape measure, if we say, okay, so, so this, is, this is how big my ability is, my conflict management or my willpower, my self-control with sin or how good I am at being patient. And this is how big my ability is. Uh, my problem's this big. And if our problem is bigger than our ability... And we give up. We run away. We don't face those kinds of problems. But what David does is David, he's aware of his own ability. right? He's not kidding himself. He's not overestimating his ability. And he's not underestimating Goliath. He knows how big Goliath is. But he's not even asking those questions. David asks one very important question. How big is my God? How big is my God? And when he starts reckoning, how big is my God again? Right? So Goliath is 9'9". 
Goliath is 99. How big is God again? And he just keeps going and he just keeps going. Now this is, I only have 25 feet right here, right? But, but imagine a tape measure that goes to eternity. Imagine an infinitely powerful God, the living God, the Lord of hosts, as David calls him. And David is just, his, he has his mind fixed and set, not on the outward appearance, the appearance of his problem, the appearance of his enemy, the appearance of himself. He has his mind fixed on the invisible, all-powerful God. And he says, how big is my God? And what he understands is this principle is so important. God's power is always greater than our problems. God's power is greater than our problems. And God doesn't always, this isn't to say that, that God will always give us what we want, that God always you know, solves the problems, especially in the way that we want him to, or that we'll never suffer a loss, right? But what it is to say is that in Christ, we have victory. And in Christ, we have victory even when we experience loss, even when we experience trial and tribulation, which we will in this present age. In Christ, ultimately, we win. You want to know a giant problem that we all face? A giant problem that we all face is sin and death. A giant problem that we all have is that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of, our, one of our biggest giant problems is that the wages of sin is death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how death is the final enemy that will be done away with. And the sting of death, the reason why death hurts so much is not only is it a result of sin being in our world and in our lives, but for those who die, who, who, are, who have not given their lives to Christ, and, and they die in sin, they are actually going to spend eternity not with their Father in heaven not with the God who loves them. That's the sting of death is sin. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to fight that problem on our own because we don't measure up. We can't win. Who can overcome death? I mean, we've solved a lot of problems with technology in our world today, but we have not been able to master death, and we have certainly not been able to master sin. And so we are left defenseless and helpless. And that's where Jesus comes in. Son of David, right, is the title. Jesus would descend from the line of David, but also son of God, right? He would come from heaven to earth, and he would fight our battle against sin and death for us. And the way that he took the victory is actually by offering his own sinless, spotless life to die on the cross in our place, and then to be raised back to life as a victory over sin and death, so that now, we can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. I think about this line from 1 Corinthians 15, 57, where Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're watching this today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want you to understand that you can have victory in Jesus Christ today. You can have victory over sin. You can have victory over broken relationships. You can have victory over toxic thoughts in your mind. You can have victory even over death. For Jesus promised those who believe in him will live even though they die. And so today, I just want to ask you, what are you waiting for? And would today be the day that like David, you call on the name of the Lord and you can experience salvation? So today I would ask you to pray and ask God to forgive your sins and to lead your life. And you can experience that anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will rest on our lives and when we repent and when we turn to God. And so I want to invite you to also take that step of baptism. Baptism is the, the way that Jesus instructed us to respond in declaring and committing our lives to him. It's the ceremony that represents dying to your old way of life and being raised back up in a victory in Christ Jesus. You can find out more about baptism at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. And then whatever you face as a follower of Jesus, be encouraged that the battle belongs to the Lord. Stop looking at the size of the problem and the size of your own ability and start remembering how big your God is. Whatever you're facing in this life, don't run away. Don't give up. Step onto the battlefield and fight. If our God, if our God is for us, then who can be against us? Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.